The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Speaking about cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm your guest host for today, Linda House, the Executive Vice President for External Affairs at the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Welcome to the show today. Today's show is brought to you in part by Morphotech, Eli Lilly and & Company, and Celgene. Today we'll be talking about the role of tissue sampling and how it plays a, a part in the cancer continuum. Here at CSC, we found that this is a relatively unknown topic, yet vital in the field of medicine. Tissue collection is one of the most important elements to the advancement of both clinical research and treatment. However, with this being said, the process and purpose of tissue collection remains incredibly misunderstood among the general public. There are many myths and stigmas surrounding tissue donation, many of which we hope to clear up today. Most people are aware that hundreds of lives are saved every year by donated organs such as hearts and kidneys. Additionally, donated tissue such as skin, bone, and heart valves can dramatically improve the quality of life for others and even save lives. What most people do not realize is that tissue can be donated at any point and it can be life-saving and may advance medical science. Donations can be as simple as donating blood, a mouth swab, or a skin sample. Joining us on the show today is Dr. Joshua LeBaire. Dr. LeBaire is one of the nation's foremost investigators in the rapidly expanding field of personalized medicine. He is the Piper Chair in Personalized Medicine, Director of the Virginia G. Piper Center for Personalized Diagnostics, and the Chair of the Directorate of the Biodesign Institute. His efforts involve leveraging the center's formidable resources for the discovery and validation of biomarkers, which are the unique molecular fingerprints of disease, which can be also provide early warning signs for those at risk of major illnesses, including cancer and diabetes. Thank you for being here, Dr. LeBaire. Thank you for having me. We're also here today with Kay Kays. Kay is a four-time pancreatic cancer survivor and initiated the first Arizona Pancreatic Network about 10 years ago now at our affiliate at the Wellness Community in Arizona. She's a patient advocate with the Research Advocacy Network and co-leads the Tissue Donor Awareness Project grant in Arizona which awares patients to a couple of topics. Number one, what is tissue? And number two, why tissue is important for cancer research. Welcome also to the show, Kay. Thank you. 
As I mentioned earlier, today's show is all about tissue collection, specifically focusing on donations made from living individuals. Many may not realize the importance of this type of collection to their own health and also the future well-being of others. If you are having an upcoming surgery, have a specific type of cancer that could have tissue removed for research, are a family member of someone with cancer, or even a healthy volunteer, you might qualify to help. Remember, tissue donation can be as simple as drawing blood or agreeing to a mouth swab. We hope today to clear up many of the misconceptions surrounding tissue collection and raise awareness about the opportunity for everyone to progress medical research and aid in the advancement of clinical research and treatment, specifically for those living with cancer. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's jump in. I'm going to start with Dr. LeBaire. We hear a lot about tissue collection and or tissue research. Dr. LeBaire, what exactly is this? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you think back, um, for, for many centuries now, uh, physicians and surgeons have learned a tremendous amount about uh, biology, about health, about medicine by examining um, either pieces of, of, of tissue or by examining uh, bodies uh, both alive and dead. Um, and and that, that kind of research is critical to our understanding of how things work and probably even more so now that we have better tools. So broadly speaking, um, Tissue research is basically any sample of your body or anything that comes out of your body could be considered a part of tissue research. And so uh, this could be a biopsy specimen taken from uh, a piece of uh, uh, an organ, for example, or a muscle, or it can be um, something like blood, as you mentioned earlier, or urine or cerebral spinal fluid. Um, just about anything that comes out of you or can be taken from you can be used to educate us about uh, both disease and the treatment of disease. Okay, let me just ask you to jump in here. You know, what, what Josh just said would indicate um, that what is a common myth is, is really not true. Um, I understand that a number of people think that tissue can only be given upon death, and what we just heard is that that may not be, be true. Could you comment on that? Yes, that, that was an, uh, something that came out of an evaluation from the 2006 um, Tissue Donor Awareness Project that was done here in Arizona. And uh, moving forward, like you said, with uh, awareing patients of what is tissue and why is tissue important to research. Um, we reached over 500 persons, and in the evaluation, 61% thought that they were going to die when they were asked to give tissue. Now, that's, that's a myth we, re we really need to educate about because they're, they're all relating it to the organ donation, and uh, that needs to, um, like I said, be educated on. That's interesting, interesting information. Um, what, what have you done in follow-up to, to, to try to reach out to that 61%? Um, mainly it's just, a, you know, um, continue to educate, you know, patients um, and, and talk about it as we are now. This is uh, uh, actually patients are, are very, I want to say, angry when they hear that they haven't been told um, about, you know, tissue donation and how they can help and how they can help it, you know, in, in research and, and help move our research forward. So um, that's really what we've been able to do, just, just continue to talk. Give a couple of examples, um, Kay, of when tissue can be given and for what is it typically used. And then, Josh, I'll ask you to add to Kay's, to Kay's response. Um, well, as, as it was uh, talked 
talked about. You can give it in a blood sample from your vein. It can be given in saliva. It can be given in a needle biopsy. Uh, it can give it uh, at surgery and an uh, and oscopy and cells scrape from the cheek or, or um, cervix. And I guess I, I was impressed with, I went down to, um, I spent a day with a researcher, and she was doing colon, and she was telling me that she would take at least two days of her um, time in the laboratory to go and uh, uh, get um, tissue, you know, from patients, get, get it consented. And what she did is everyone gets a colonoscopy, and... Um, you know, if they take a polyp out that, you know, is possible to be looked at, you know, they'll take the part that they need uh, to look at for your diagnosis and then throw the rest of the way. And that is precious, very precious to the researchers. And so she would consent patients at that time uh, to give that um, tissue to research. So that's just one example of how we can help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. LeBaire, what would you add to that? So, so yeah, so the, taking uh, samples from patients occurs naturally during the course of medical care all the time. Um, the the, um, the degree of invasiveness, if you will, of, of what you take from a patient depends obviously on, to some extent, the severity of the diagnosis and what the specific diseases are. But um, anyone who's been a patient knows that there are times when you have blood taken, uh, often, often routine when you visit. Um, sometimes if, if there's concern about a particular disease, uh, a doctor might recommend that they will take a biopsy to take a look at something to see what it is. In some cases, that biopsy may be related to uh, concern about cancer, but it might be other things like inflammatory bowel disease or, or um, a skin condition, for example. Um, and so we, we do those, we take those samples in the course of medical, regular medical care to either make a diagnosis to determine what this is, because often just looking at the symptoms alone is not adequate to make a diagnosis. Sometimes we do it to uh, clarify what we think is the prognosis, so to understand better what we think the course of this illness will be based on what we see in the specimen. And in some cases, we, we take specimens from patients to monitor how they're doing, just to see, are they responding to therapy well? Are they, um, is their disease progressing, or is it in a quiet phase? So this happens all the time during medical care. What we're talking about here is, is uh, making use of the fact that this is done all the time to take those specimens and then, and what, as Kay so well pointed, pointed out that we, we can take what's left over from those specimens that are often taken during regular care and then make the rest of it available for research because oftentimes uh, in order to understand disease, we need to take a look at these specimens and see what's in them, see what uh, proteins are present, see um, what activities are present in those samples, what the cells look like. That tells us a lot about um, what the disease is, but we only get access to specimens from patients um, at times when they're, they're taken from patients. And typically for uh, samples that are, are taken for research purposes, we don't usually uh, set up to take them from patients just for the sake of taking them. Now, that, that's sometimes done in really crucial research. I don't want to say it's never done. But more often than not, we, we take them at a normal point during the care of the patient, and we just use what's left over from their clinical purpose for research purpose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And could you just elaborate in the couple minutes we have left um, in this section, are you talking about a particular cancer, or is what you're referring to applicable to all types of cancer? So what I'm talking about applies to all types of cancer. Um, now, obviously, which tissues uh, you look at depend a lot upon the types of cancer. So, for example, 
Um, if you're interested in liver cancer, then presumably you want biopsies of, 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 of liver. And, you know, one can take a biopsy from a liver in a living patient. That's not a problem. Uh, if you're looking at a, a, a leukemia or a lymphoma, then you might be looking at blood or a bone marrow biopsy. Um, and then, again, there might be um, t- biopsies taken from breast and breast cancer. So the, where, the tissue, where the tissue comes from depends upon the type of cancer we're talking about. But, um, but the, the importance of tissue covers all cancers. And this is very exciting to patients because different cancers may share the same targets, and that allows us to share the chemos, and that's, that's going to be very exciting. That's great, and I'm going to ask us to, to, to hold on to that thought, and for the listeners to stay with us, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then, Kay, I would like to pick up when we come back on that, com- on that, that conversation um, about targeting and, and what that means. Um, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we will be right back after the break. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and ten meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back. 
back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is brought to you in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb and AstraZeneca. I'm your guest host, Linda House, and today I'm joined by Dr. LaBear, Director of the Virginia G. Piper Center for Personalized Diagnostics, the Biodesign Institute at Arizona State University, and also KK's, a four-time pancreatic cancer survivor and patient advocate with the Research Advocacy Network. Today we're talking about tissue donation, and we discussed on our first segment what it is and worked to clear up some of the misconceptions. Now I'd like to turn to our guests and talk more about why it's important But before we do that, Kay, you touched on an issue right before the break, um, how there might be the same target across different cancer types. And I'd like for for the two of you to just um, expand upon that just a little for me. Well, I can just say in... In, in pancreatic cancer, which is very exciting because we, we have very little research. And one of the uh, chemos that is coming out now that's being very beneficial to patients is a breast cancer drug called Abraxane. And what's special about this is it targets the expression SPARC. And pancreatic cancer patients seem to have this expression also. And so they're thinking that this is why it's working so well. And uh, again, for us in pancreatic cancer who have very few chemos, this has served to be um, very beneficial and is giving a lot more survival for um, treatment. Um, so that, that would be one example that I would be able to give. I think the, a general concept I might add to that is that um, the way we're viewing cancer in the 21st century is, is a bit different than the way we have viewed it historically. Uh, in, in olden times, uh, obviously, uh, uh, for, for apparent reasons, cancer was largely viewed anatomically. That is to say, where the cancer started. Did it start in the breast? Did it start in the lung? Did it start in the pancreas? And so on. But as we've studied cancers in much more detail, and particularly as we've looked at the molecules that drive the causation of cancer, we've learned that common biochemical pathways occur in different cancers, and some cancers look more like other cancers, even if they've started in completely different anatomical locations. So if we can identify those pathways that contribute to cancer, whether it occurs in in a pancreatic cancer or a breast cancer, the same drug may be useful. And so this is an important tool, uh, one that we've learned dramatically by looking at tissue samples. Well, and this is essentially the foundation of personalized medicine, as I understand it. So if we could just take a moment and and step back just a little bit and and break down potentially some of the other components of personalized medicine. So, you know, what does it look like today and what do we hope it might look like in the future, Dr. LeBaire? Yeah, so uh, personalized medicine is a a concept that has evolved, but it's really one that that is, you know, um, back to the future, if you will. uh, Those of us who trained in medical school 30 years ago always thought that the care we gave our patients was personalized. Um, But if you look at medicine uh, from a a higher uh, viewpoint, for example, you realize that there is a a spectrum, if you will, uh, of the level of personalization that's needed in treatment. And so on one end of that spectrum, you might have something like, you know, community-acquired pneumonia, which, you know, pretty much everybody, if you give them uh, some type of penicillin, will be cured. So one drug works for just about everybody. Uh, On the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, a much more difficult challenge would be if everybody's cancer were unique and a unique drug were needed to treat that. Now, that's an extreme case that fortunately doesn't exist. But somewhere in the middle, there's a sort of Goldilocks balance, if you will, that says that we we realize now that that cancers that we once thought were uh, 
the same for everybody who had them really aren't the same. So, for example, when I was in medical school, uh, breast cancer was really, you know, one or two, you know, diagnoses, you know, ductal carcinoma of the breast. We now know that there are at least seven or eight different diseases that comprise breast cancer, and each of them has a different prognosis and requires slightly different therapy. And so what personalized medicine says is we need to, we need to have two pillars in place. The first pillar is diagnostics. We need good ways of looking at the sample and figuring out which subtype of disease this one is. And then, and then the other pillar is therapeutics. We need therapeutics that specifically target the pathways that cause that specific subtype and that will treat it best. And so when we say personalized care, what we're saying is we're going to look at you as a patient, figure out exactly the type of cancer you have, and then treat it the way it needs to be treated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and this, allows a, this is important to patients because it allows a patient to be treated by a treatment that, that might not only show benefit in the future, but more notably benefits to their cancer now. And we need to be putting more emphasis on the first-line treatments for patients. The fight, side effects can be harsh, and it becomes harder and harder to fight back on the second and third treatments. Mm-hmm. And this truly is why, you know, tissue collection is so, so important um, to personalized medicine. And, you know, if you could just expand upon that just a, a little bit more, Dr. LeBaire, um, clearly without having, um, you know, these targets identified, um, it, it, it limits what you're able to do for the long, the long term. That's absolutely true. So, you know, uh, for many, many years in cancer research, a lot of effort was focused on looking at cells that grow in petri dishes uh, uh, that are derived ultimately from cancers. Um, But a lot of work was done on, you know, a few common cell lines. And we we thought that, you know, we could really understand what was happening in cancer based on the work that were going on there. And, And to be fair, that work has been hugely beneficial to our understanding today. But then uh, as we start looking at actual tissue specimens from real life people, we realize that what we observed in the cells isn't always the case and that from one person to another or from uh, one, one tumor to another, uh, there are differences and those differences are really important because it means that in one case, uh, one particular tissue sample suggests one set of pathways that are important and in a different sample, different pathways are important. And until we understand those differences and realize that they need different therapies, uh, we're not going to make progress in in cancer treatment. And so um, what tissue samples do for us is it allows us to look at those differences and understand how they contribute to the disease and how we can better diagnose it. Great. Kay, would you add to that? Um, Actually, Dr. LeBaire kind of covered it all. (laughs) Only what I had added before, yes. Yeah, great. Um, I, I was wondering then if, if, if either of you could comment. Um, and when you think about tissue collection today and the role that, you know, tissue collection is playing today, and then also the role that it will play for future disease prevention or, or treatment, uh, what, what would your comments be around those two particular issues? And what should we be thinking about as listeners, ways in which we could participate? Well, there's, so there's a couple of things that are really important here. Um, one is we need to get the word out to people that, um, that we really need these samples because I can tell you as a researcher who does this kind of work, it's very hard to find the samples we need to do the kinds of studies we need. Um, this is particularly true because as we have recognized that cancers are what we say heterogeneous, that is to say there are more than one subtype, then to get adequate statistics to prove our points, we need that many more samples to have enough examples of subtype A and enough examples of subtype B that our, that our research will be relevant. And so that means we just have to get that many more samples. 
I think another important element that uh, we have to learn is not just for the for getting the word out to people that we need the samples, but getting the word out that we need to set up the agencies and the um, infrastructure to actually collect those samples and to do so in a way that is going to make it useful for the future. Um, there are uh, many, many samples that are sitting in people's freezers that have been sort of collected ad hoc by doctors over the years. But unfortunately, um, as they've collected those samples, they've not really collected them in a way that will be useful. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, an old movie, uh, maybe not that old anymore, but uh, The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, in which the main character is seeking revenge on, on someone else. And the way he does so is he sneaks into his wine cellar and uses a steam iron to get steam off all the labels from the bottles. And, and, that's sort of and that's sort of relevant for this because um, although the wine bottles are still there, they're mm -hmm. useless to the user because he doesn't know which ones are which. Mm -hmm. And the same would be true for samples. If we collect a lot of tissue samples, but we don't appropriately label them, if we don't get a good clinical history from the person who donated them, if we don't know what treatments were used, if we don't know how the sample was collected, they're not that helpful to us. So the labeling is just as important as the samples themselves. So if I'm a listener, how do, how do I make sure that, that, that all of this correct labeling and cataloging is being done in, in the correct way so that my contribution will, in fact, be useful? My suggestion would be to make sure that, um, that you're, you're um, donating your sample to an established tissue bank or an established collection bank. In other words, what's, what's typically true is that the sort of the, the bigger programs that set up the formal tissue collection uh, systems, those typically do a pretty good job, I think, of collecting samples and collecting the information about the samples. Um, I think what, what tends to be more problematic is individual doctors who, you know, for their own purposes, want to just take a little bit of your sample. Those sort of informal things um, don't necessarily follow best practices. And so I think, you know, just a, a few questions to make sure that this is going into a, a formal study and that the study has had appropriate approval by what's called an IRB, an internal review board, which is specifically designed to make sure that, that the research is done in the, the best possible way. And I suspect that, the, that there, there may be a question or two that the listener could ask in terms of, um, is, it, is, it, is it an accredited lab, for example, that would add some level of, of authority to, to, to what they're doing and, and credibility? Yeah, I guess so. I, I'm not sure... Um, uh, what you mean by an accredited lab? Because um, for typical research labs, um, uh, we, labs themselves don't necessarily get accredited. Um, although uh, to, uh, studies, protocols where we collect samples, those do need to get um, signed off on. And that's sort of the accreditation. That is to say, this is where the IRB, the Internal Review Board, before mm -hmm. we can collect samples from anyone, um, we have to go through a formal process of getting approval to say that we've, this is how we're going to do it. This is the information we're going to collect. This is how we're going to ensure that the um, patient or the subject understands what we're doing and why we're doing it and what the risks are um, and that they were getting what's called informed consent. And all of that stuff has to be in place. And so if you're giving a sample to a study where uh, a formal IRB has signed off on it, then in general, that's pretty good. That's great. You know, and, and very helpful to, to to help us understand that there is some you know some sort of some sort of oversight. We are going to take a quick commercial break. Again, we'd encourage the listeners to please stay with us because when we come back in the next segment, we're actually going to talk about some real um, examples of of how what we're talking about in the last couple of sections is being um, put to play in, in in medical research. So, if you will please stay with us, we will be back shortly.
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is brought to you in part by Millennium and Genentech. I'm Linda House, and today I'm joined by Dr. LeBaire, Director of the Virginia G. Piper Center for Personalized Diagnostics at the Biodesign Institute at Arizona State University, and also Kay Kays, a four-time pancreatic cancer survivor and a patient advocate with the Research and Advocacy Network. In this next segment, I'd like to talk to our guests about some of the specific examples and successes that tissue research has led to, um, particularly in the area of medical advances and specifically with cancer. So, Dr. LeBaire, can you give an example of typical types of tissue? And I know you've done that throughout uh, today's show, but, you know, specifically some, um, some examples where this typical type of tissue collection has had an impact on um, research in, in ways that our listeners may not even be aware. Sure. Um, you know, I think probably one thing that people often don't think of as a tissue, but we doctors think of as a tissue, is blood. Um, you know, blood is one of the tissues in our body, and um, uh, probably one of the most common forms of research, particularly biomarker research, is doing studies from blood samples. And uh, just getting a little bit of blood from people um, uh, 
can be enormously helpful to doctors in terms of identifying uh, uh, molecules in blood that are indicators of disease. So it, it's not apparent that that would be true, but it certainly is. Um, similarly, uh, uh, doctors do studies on joint fluid for people with arthritis, uh, or they do studies on um, uh, cerebral spinal fluid for people with neurological diseases. Um, we also, um, uh, in some cases where uh, biopsies were taken, and Kay mentioned this earlier, like during a colonoscopy, for example, uh, a small sample is taken, and if we can get the remainder of that sample, the part that's not used by the pathology lab, again, that could be something that could lead to uh, comparisons made and uh, helpfully identify markers that would indicate uh, cancer or other, other illnesses. And, and Kay, I know that you had talked previous about some some um, some examples of times when you you've been able to work in in this particular environment, as Josh had mentioned. So it's it's, it's very exciting. Um, what about screening and prevention? So what about the role that tissue collection can play specifically in uh, screening and prevention? And, and would that be applicable to one particular type of cancer over another? Excuse me. I, uh, Josh had mentioned also the, the biomarkers, and yes, that's what comes in with screening and prevention. Uh, a, a lot of the cancers uh, are aware of that. The melanoma, you know, where they use the MIA for staging and prognosis. Uh, colorectal, where they use the CEA, um, liver, pancreatic, breast, they all have tumor biomarkers that are used for screening and prevention. Yeah, you know, the, the, the area of screening obviously is something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and it's a, it's a complex, uh, topic that itself could easily be the, 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 the subject of one or two of these programs. Um, uh, what we're looking for with screening studies is basically we're trying to look among the healthy population or at least the apparently healthy population and see if we can identify those individuals who have the earliest forms of cancer, uh, because Many of us are convinced that if we can catch it early, we can have a big, bigger impact than if we if we wait when it's too long, too late. Uh, and so, um, almost every form of cancer um, will require perhaps a slightly different form of screening. So, for example, there's been recent evidence now that in heavy smokers, at least, um, CT scans on a somewhat routine basis may re- may detect lung cancer earlier than than no CT scans, no regular CT scans. We know for sure that uh, routine colonoscopies, not not done all that frequently, but certainly one or two of them starting around the age of 50, um, can detect early forms of uh, colon cancer. And in fact, the the screening study can actually be a treatment for that. Uh, with women, um, there's evidence uh, at, 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 in a certain age group that mammography can be beneficial at detecting early breast cancer. Uh, as a blood test, uh, many men are getting screened by the, the PSA test, although that's controversial. And to be fair, there are there are significant limitations to that. And and that sort of raises the, the, the other side of the coin here for screening, which is you have to be sure that when you detect it, you have a plan, that you're going to have something that you can do for it. And you have to make sure that... Um, there are what we call false positives. The test says that a person has a disease when, in fact, they either don't have a disease or they don't have an aggressive form of the disease, in which case you have to be careful that your treatment is not worse than the, just making the diagnosis itself. So um, it's a, an important topic, but all of it relies on, um, you know, getting clinical specimens that we can look at and determine what's there and what it means. 
Well, and just to add to what I think I'm hearing you saying is that also our listeners may have heard of the BRCA1 gene or the BRCA2 gene, or I know we've had a show just a few weeks ago on Lynch syndrome and how studying really these tissue samples can help can help identify people within families that could be at risk. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That's a really important point. So that 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 looks even earlier in a sense. Um, you know, the things that I was mentioning were things to look for. Maybe the cancer's already there, but as you point out, just looking at certain genetic changes in one's DNA makeup can indicate maybe the person doesn't have cancer today, but they're at higher risk for cancer, which means that that person should be watched more closely. Um, you know, uh, the BRCA1 genes were and, and BRCA2 genes are, are, are genes that encode proteins that play a role in sort of making sure that our DNA is stable. They, they sort of make sure that our genetic material doesn't get mutated over time. And obviously, if you, if you lose those genes, um, uh, you basically have a higher risk of having mutations, which is one of the ways in which cancer starts. And uh, uh, individuals, particularly women who have those genes, are at somewhere around a five-fold higher risk of getting breast cancer. And so they really should be watched more carefully. Uh, than the average population because their risk of cancer is higher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if we look at taking this into the next phase, if you, if you will, of the cancer continuum, so what about diagnostics? So, you know, I know a number of people may have an X-ray like you had indicated with the spiral CT, um, or they may have had um, a, a, a breast exam and a lump was found, but then, then how does it move from this, you know, physical exam or an X-ray exam to uh, tissue collection and the role that it plays in, in diagnosis? Well, I can say something about that. In fact, that's an important issue because that's why I became a, a tissue advocate. Um, it, it, it it's not only the initial uh, tests that are taken. I actually had some surgery, surgery done on my lung, and I had made uh, special arrangements for my tissue to be banked. I, I was very adamant about that. And when it was done, uh, uh, and what, what you do is you set it up, and what they were going to do was have what they call fresh frozen, where they use the nitrogen right there, and it didn't happen. And I was very upset about it. And the reason it didn't happen is because they didn't have the nitrogen there. Now, that was very um, devastating to me because this was how I was going to move forward with my treatment as far as um, my diagnosis with pancreatic cancer in the lung. Um, the researcher himself had said I would have come down and collected it, you know, had I known that there was, was that problem. Because the fresh frozen, they can get so much more for your diagnosis from it. So to me, as far as diagnosis and, you know, the tissue collection and moving forward on a treatment, that's just a personal uh, journey. Um, so that, that's what I would add to that. Mm-hmm. So I, Dr. LeBaire, any comments? Yeah, I, I, I might take, I'll, I'll mention sort of in a more general sense. Um, mm-hmm. uh, diagnostics has changed dramatically over the course of medical history. If you look back to the 17th century, for example, a diagnosis in those days was really sort of a Latin restatement of the symptoms. And so, you know, you might say that, the, you know, the, the patient has the fever or the patient has the diarrhea. Um, it, what happened in the 20th century was the invent, was the, really the development of the use of the microscope, and that was really the dominant tool of making diagnoses. And you, we then realized that that something like diarrhea was uh, could have an infectious cause because they could see bacteria, 
uh, in which case the treatment would have been antibiotics, or it could be inflammatory bowel disease, in which case um, antibiotics probably wouldn't help. What you really needed was to suppress the inflammation. What's changed now in the 21st century is um, the era of the molecule. So we're, we're now moving past the microscope, and we're really looking at individual proteins and individual molecules that indicate very specific subtypes of disease. And again, this is where um, getting tissue from patients who, um, uh, you know, who can allow us to use the remainder of a specimen uh, from, from a study or something, we can look at the molecules in those specimens, the DNA, for example, the genes that are expressed in the DNA, or even the proteins in those samples, and get a much better sense of specifically what's going on in this patient so that we have a better understanding of, of not only the diagnosis of the patient, so we can say, in a, for example, in a woman with breast cancer that you have, you know, uh, ER positive breast cancer, which means estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, or you have ER negative breast cancer, and those have two very different implications on prognosis and treatment. Um, yeah, we can say that for the patient, but we can also learn about the diseases uh, for the next patient that comes along. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, but clearly one patient is one patient um, because you're learning so much about th- these molecular targets, and it's 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 really it's it's amazing. Um, I'm going to ask the two of you the same question, and and we'll, we'll see if we get a different answer from from each of you. Um, I'd like to know, in your opinion, if you can give one example of tissue research that's had the greatest example, or I'm sorry, the greatest impact on um, you know medical outcomes or advancing the field of research. Give me one example, if you could. Okay, I guess I can go first. <laughs> um, this one is a more general one. It, I, you know, I, this is a hard question to answer because there are yeah. so many that have had huge impact. But I think one that really, a modern day one that has uh, huge impact is, is what I would call the Herceptin story. Um, mm-hmm. and this, this is an example of this kind of molecular studies that really has led to one of the most dramatic treatments in breast cancer that has emerged in the past two decades. And uh, this is work that uh, Dennis Slayman at UCLA did and Alex Ulrich at Genentech did and, and some earlier work that Bob Weinberg did at MIT um, where, you know, Bob Weinberg and, and Alex Ulrich independently discovered this protein in the surface of breast cancer, in the surface of cancer cells, it wasn't originally breast cancer, um, that, that looked like it played an important role as what we call an oncogene. It, it, caused, cancer, uh, it caused cancer in cells. And uh, later, they, uh, Dennis Slayman, by looking at tissue specimens that he happened to have in his freezer, so he was a pack rat and he collected sample, samples of uh, breast tissue from a number of women who had had surgeries. And he looked for this oncogene, and he found it in a, in a large fraction, but not all, of the, of the breast cancer samples. And he thought, well, maybe, you know, a treatment against this protein might reduce the cancer. And so he went to Alex Ulrich at Genentech, and they spent some time uh, developing something called Herceptin, which is an antibody that inhibits this oncogene. And sure enough, this treatment has had an enormous impact not on all women with breast cancer, but on those women with a specific subtype of breast cancer that has this HER2 protein on it. And again, it comes back to this tissue issue. You, you need to actually look at the tissue specimen and see if that protein is there. And if it is there, then that drug will have a profound effect. And so it, it came full circle. You know, the tissue is what led us to this treatment, and the tissue is what allows us to use it effectively. I, I think in general, it's just being able to treat the patients with the advantage of benefit from the start. You know, there's challenging questions that we'll be able to answer before the treatment, such as resistance and recurrence also, and hopefully it will help us make cancer a chronic disease and go for a cure. 
Right. Well, we certainly hope for that. Um, We have to take a quick commercial break. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be back shortly. which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and ten meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your guest host, Linda House, and today I'm joined by Dr. LeBaire, the director of the Virginia G. Piper Center for Personalized Diagnostics at the Biodesign Institute at Arizona State University, and also KK's, a longtime friend of cancer support community and a four-time pancreatic cancer survivor and advocate with the Research Advocacy Network. In our final segment, I'd like to talk about the practical applications of tissue collection, where we'll hear from our guests how listeners and their loved ones can get involved in tissue collection and make a difference in advancing clinical research and treatment. Kay, I'd like to start with you. For those who are listening to our show today and are currently living with cancer or touched by cancer as a family member or a caregiver, if if they're interested in tissue collection or donating tissue, how can they participate? 
Well, we found again in the Tissue Donor Awareness Project that there was a lot of physician resistance out there also. Uh, and one of the things that came out of it was a Dear Doctor letter. And this is a way in, in that patients can actually, you know, uh, work uh, to help. And what this letter said was, Dear Doctor, should I have a biopsy or surgery or any kind of um, way that I can... Um, you know, bank tissue, would you please talk to me? Because we found that the physicians were very reluctant. And this letter was then signed by the patient, signed by the doctor, and put in their file. And uh, I believe it, 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 in the, um, it will, you know, be beneficial for the patient in the future. So is there a place where our listeners could go to get a copy of that letter? Could they download it for themselves, or could we make it available to them in some way? Uh, I can get hold of the letter, yes. Right now, like I said, it was just used in the project. I believe um, Research Advocacy Network um, in their uh, tissue think tank is actually coming up with a letter that might be um, able to be used by patients. So that will be something to look to. Great, and I'll offer up to the listeners. In the meantime, if you do want to get a copy of the draft letter that Kay is mentioning, you could email me directly, and we'll get it in your hands. And, you know, my email is linda at cancersupportcommunity.org. Dr. LeBaire, I'd like to just turn to you for a second, and can you talk to us about what family members or loved ones could do if they, if they would like to participate in either tissue collection or research of, of, of this type? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that because that is um, so important. So uh, a lot of what I've talked about today and what we've all talked about today is um, the kind of science that's done on these specimens is all about making comparisons. It's, it's typically we compare samples that come from patients who, uh, who have a disease to um, what we call control specimens, pe- people who don't have a disease. And what we're looking for are what's different. Now, if you take any two samples, from, you know, one from a person A and one from person B, you're going to find differences, and some of those differences are just going to be the natural differences between person A and person B, and some of them are going to be specific to the disease. Now, the best way that we can get rid of some of those random differences is by looking at samples that come from people who are close to the ones who are sick. In other words, if we, if we have uh, uh, a pair of brothers, one of whom has a cancer and one of whom doesn't, uh, they're going to share a lot of the same genes. Um, but the one things that will be different are those things that are due to the cancer. And so um, getting specimens from family members um, is incredibly valuable for research. Plus, just getting plain samples from people who are healthy or who don't have a particular illness is incredibly valuable. Oftentimes, people in my shoes who are trying to get specimens can get hold of specimens from people who have cancer, but we can't get enough uh, from people who don't because we just uh, healthy people typically don't donate specimens. And so we can't make the comparisons because all we have is the cancers and we, we have no normals to compare it to. So um, that's incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and I understand as well um, that there is a tissue bank at the Simon Cancer Center here at um, Indiana University where they are collecting um, samples from healthy women and also healthy women at different stages. So they have samples for uh, women who are pregnant, um, women who are postmenopausal, premenopausal, and they're trying to get it from all different um, um, races and, and ethnicities. And interestingly enough, I know that there are two women who have samples in the bank now pre 
breast cancer diagnosis and then post-breast cancer diagnosis. And it does seem like those type of, of contrasting samples would be incredibly helpful to individuals like you who are, who are doing this on-the-ground research. Huge benefit, and, and that that um, uh, the, the Simon Cancer Center's Coleman Tissue Bank is a, a, a pioneer, really, in this area of getting samples from healthy individuals, which typically is difficult to do because, as we mentioned earlier in this program, um, getting getting a specimen that's done as part of routine clinical care and asking for some of it to be donated to research is one thing, but going to a healthy woman who has no diagnosis and asking for a tissue specimen is a whole other thing, and and they've really um, you know, Connie Rufenbarger and others have really put a huge effort in, in getting this set up so that we can get those kinds of specimens. It's really valuable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and just, a, just a question to sort of piggyback on, on Kay's, convert, or Kay's comment about um, healthcare professionals. So for the healthcare professionals who are listening in to, to this call today, you know, what are ways in which they, they could or should be, um, you know, promoting tissue collection, participating in research? Um, what are the, the practical applications that they might, they might um, apply to, to their, their patients? I believe awareness and education to patients about tissue and its importance is is something that they can really promote. Uh, Research Advocacy Network has um, uh, pamphlets on it, uh, as do a lot of other organizations, and I I believe that we we need to... uh, Get patients involved. You know, we we asked them to go on clinical trials, and then we had to back up and tell them what a clinical trial is. And now we're asking for tissue, and we need to back up and tell patients what tissue is. And I think that's, that's an important issue that needs to be moved forward. Doctor LeBaire, anything that you would ask? Well, you know, I, 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 I'm actually curious to ask Kay when you when you ran into this uh, resistance from the physicians, did, did they give you a sense of what they were objecting to? What what was their? You know, I the. Resistance came from the patients um, telling me about it. So I really didn't have any emphasis. They right. didn't give uh, right. one. Uh, I remember one surgeon says, I can't do that until your oncologist gives me the okay. And it's like, you know, that's, that was just unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just the only one of the examples that, you know, I had heard. Mm-hmm. Well, and so clearly, that, this is the reason why we're doing this show today is to raise awareness across the board, whether it's the, the, the patient, whether it's a family member, or whether it's a physician, um, about ways in which we could all work together to advance this very important um, mission. So as we have just a couple minutes left in, in the show, I'd just like to make sure that, that I gave each of you a chance um, to speak about, about anything that we haven't touched on yet, and you want to make sure that as we continue to bring these audiences together and, and raise awareness around this important topic, uh, what, would you like to, what would you like to add in closing today's show? I feel that the questions that were asked today were very beneficial to patients, and uh, if, if I were in the listening audience, would would really help me move forward. I, I thought you did a good job. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I think it's been terrific. I mean, uh, hopefully, as a result of this, people will become more aware that um, there is there is a huge need currently in the medical research uh, realm for samples so that we can better understand, uh, in particular in cancer, so we can better understand the disease and so we can better understand who's at risk for the disease and to understand how to better diagnose the disease. Um, and that, that need uh, covers both um, samples from people who actually have it uh, as well as people who don't have it and who um, uh, you know, may be apparently healthy so that we can make the comparisons. 
Uh, and so the hope would be that we can start collecting samples more broadly uh, and make them available. I mean, one of the challenges you face with tissue is that um, there's often very, not very much of it, and uh, it goes quickly. Uh, it's not something that's renewable. Once you remove it and use it, it's gone. And so uh, uh, we're, we're always in need for it. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us on today's show and for being a part of this really important discussion in general on tissue collection. I know that this is something you'll stay close to and continue to, to drive forward. Um, I really think we brought a lot of valuable information to the show today for patients, their families, their loved ones, and, and the general public. Um, I just want to reinforce to learn more about the work of Dr. Josh LeBaire and the Biodesign Institute at the Arizona State University. Please visit their website at www biodesign.asu.edu. And to learn more about the Research Advocacy Network, again, wonderful partners of the cancer support community, and we appreciate all they do, their website is www.researchadvocacy.org. They've got incredible tools on this topic of tissue research and research in general, so I encourage you to visit their website. And thank you all for joining us today on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. It's truly an honor to be your guest host. Kim Thibodeau, the President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, will be back next week with yet another valuable episode of the show. As mentioned earlier, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs, visit our website at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. You can also find a location near you or join an online support group. We also have a toll-free helpline. That number is 888-793-9355, where you can speak with a licensed counselor Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until the next time, please be well, do well, and live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.